Uh, Well, this morning, if you've been with us for the past, I don't know, forever, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John in a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter kind of way. And this morning, uh, we come to chapter 14. And uh, John devotes a lot of the last half of his Gospel account to really the night on which Jesus was betrayed. From about chapter 13 through chapter 17, we are going to be right there with Jesus on the last night as he is betrayed through his high priestly prayer, and then the last bit of it will uh, be devoted to uh, his trial, his crucifixion, and his post-resurrection appearances, but we are still on the last night of his life. And you'll remember from our study last week, we really concentrated and focused on Peter. We kind of did a character study of Peter. Peter focused prominently, featured prominently in chapter 13. And the, the thing that Jesus said that really troubled Peter, that got his attention, they're all sitting around at the Last Supper, and Jesus makes this statement that Peter locked in on with laser-like focus, and that was this. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter heard those words from Jesus, where I'm going, you cannot come, and his heart just rebelled. That just seemed like the most awful, horrible thing that he could have possibly heard. What do you mean you're going away and we can't come with you? Explain yourself. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But then, there's a little bit of hope, Jesus says this, but you will follow afterward. It's not a permanent separation. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then, of course, we spent the rest of the time just focusing on Peter's uh, failure and his uh, being reconciled to Jesus, that whole incredible story of grace and redemption that played out last week. But in chapter 14, Jesus picks this topic back up again. He's going to explain and elaborate further exactly what uh, he is talking about when he's saying he's going away. And so I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 14. And the first thing he says is this, "'Let not your hearts be troubled.'" said, Peter, I know your heart is just quivering at this idea that I'm leaving and you can't come with me. I'm telling you right now, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, As I explained in the midweek email this week, earlier this week, back in 2011 for our 10th wedding anniversary, Sarah and I really wanted to do something splashy. (laughs) We were like, this is our 10th anniversary. For some of you who have been married like forever, you're like, ah, that's amateur stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> but for us, it was a big milestone. Like, wow, 10 years. This is a big deal. A full decade of married life together. Wow, honey, we should really do something monumental. And uh, we even hatched crazy plans like going to the South Pacific and things like that. Uh, but in the end, we ended up uh, coming up with a plan that was less splashy. I'll talk about that in a minute. But we talked her mom into watching our kids for a week. And we made reservations to the Clement Hotel in Monterey, California. And we had originally, again, planned to do something much bigger. But then reality and car repairs and babies, they had all conspired to make us scale back our original plans. And still, with some help from family, we managed a week away in Monterey, which ended up being pretty splashy and incredible anyway. We were living in California at the time, but I'd never been to the town of Monterey before. And in the months before our trip, I researched everything I could about the place. I mean, I went to the Wikipedia page. I scrolled through the Clement Hotel's website, looking at all the pictures. What are the rooms like? What is the pool like? How far is it from the ocean? Stuff like that. I read the reviews of local attractions and eateries. I consulted local maps, the touristy maps, you know, with like cartoon-like drawings of this is here. And I was like, that's, that's cool. I watched YouTube videos of the drive up the Pacific Coast Highway and Big Sur. And even I even did this, guys. I read... John Steinbeck's Tortilla Flats and Cannery Row, which are both set in Monterey. This research was the form that my excitement and anticipation took as I counted down the days to our getaway. Now, in John 14, Jesus speaks of a coming day when we're all going to go away with him to the Father's house. He speaks of many rooms. He speaks of going to prepare a place. And he speaks of his plans to come back and get us so that we can go with him there and be with him. And as I read those verses in John 14, I found myself suddenly scrutinizing his words in the same way I once scrutinized the little thumbnail images on the Clement Hotel's website. What can I glean about what it's going to be like from what he's saying here? What can I learn about the nature of heaven from these small little thumbnail sketches of words that he's hung out there? Don't you wish you could know more about heaven? I mean, isn't that a great mystery? Isn't it something that the Bible is surprisingly tight-lipped about while holding it out as the great promise, the great treasure, the great reward? We know very little about what it will be like. So I found myself scrutinizing his words. I wanted more information. And the thumbnail image of of heaven that Jesus provides in our passage for this this morning is enough to arouse our curiosity, but it doesn't provide enough details to bed that curiosity back down in certainty. (laughs) It just doesn't. It tells us everything we need to know, perhaps, but not everything we would like to know. But even so, it does tell us some things about heaven that are worth exploring and thinking about this morning. Most of the details about heaven are in the first couple verses. I'll read them again, and then we'll dive in. And there are some things in here I think are worth exploring and thinking about as it relates to heaven. Jesus said, "...in my Father's house are many rooms." If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The first thing to see in Jesus' description of heaven is that our going there will be a returning home. Jesus describes the place where he is going and where he will one day take us as the Father's house. This is how he answers when asked where it is exactly where he is going. He's going home. He's going back to his father's house. Now, this term, father's house, has a little bit of baggage, at least as it was concerned in the original audience who first received the Gospel of John, specifically to the Jewish mind that was habituated and and shaped by the culture of Judaism at that time. Uh, When you reference the Father's house, probably the first thing that would have occurred in the mind of somebody at that time in that place in that culture was what? The temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, Jesus himself refers to the temple as the Father's house. We know, remember, you might remember way back in the early prehistoric days when we were back in John 2, that when Jesus cleansed the temple, he said... He, God described the temple as what? He's my father's house. And in other places in the Bible, actually many numerous places, the temple is referred to as the father's house. However, in Acts 7, Stephen makes it plain that the temple is not the dwelling of God in the way that the religious leaders of the day taught and believed and thought of it. The temple according to the Bible's testimony, was a localized witness to a universal presence. It was a showcase monument to an everywhere reality of a God. Toward the end of his famous speech, the one that got him stoned, Stephen said, But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? It is a little bit absurd and ridiculous to look at the world God made, that God, who holds the oceans in the palm of his hand, we could build a place to capture him, house him. That's a ridiculous idea. And so the temple, at least as God envisioned it, its place within national life and its place in religious ceremonial importance, it was like a monument to an everywhere reality. It was a localized witness to a universal presence. And it was never meant or intended as a place where God was especially present. God is no more or no less present anywhere. I don't think it works that way. He is an everywhere God. And you see, I think most of the temples that have been built by men as dwelling places for the gods were places set apart. Pagan worshipers in John's day believed that their god or gods were present in a temple complex in a way that they were not present down in the market or back in their homes. God was roped off and separated from the people. And these gods did not make their dwelling place among the people, but rather they lived someplace remote like Mount Olympus. However, God's desire, so often expressed and repeated in the Old Testament, was that he intended to make his dwelling place among his people. 
Consider just one of many verses I could cite to make the point. In Ezekiel 37, 27, God says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Properly understood, verses like these are not saying God wants to move in with us. God is not saying, hey, can I come be with you where you're at? So much as he wants, to make, he wants us to make our home in him. He is not expressing as his desire that he might come move in and live with us. He is really saying, you should come back to me. You should come back and make your home in me. You should abide in me. In Jeremiah, God uses the analogy of an animal's homing instinct to very movingly describe the souls of men and women which have been made to, to home in on God like migrating birds, instead behaving unnaturally and tragically confused by moving away from him instead. God says this in Jeremiah 8, "'Even the stork in the heavens knows her times.'" And the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. He's saying, look at the animals, how they have this homing instinct. They know how to come from far away and come precisely to the place of rest that is right for them. But you human beings (laughs) are just running around like Larry, Moe, and Curly. You don't seem to know where you're going or what you're going towards. You're tragically confused and lost. Perhaps we can never know, maybe we'll never know, what feeling of assurance comes over a salmon as it noses its way back up the precise same stream from which it first spawned. But I imagine it might be similar to the sensation I have felt in finding my way home to God. And my homing instinct for God locks in on this language that Jesus uses describing heaven as the Father's house. My Father's house. Your Father's house. Our Father's house. With a feeling that is just exactly right. Heaven is where we belong. Heaven is home, and our going there will be a homecoming. We'll be going back to where it feels just exactly right. I think anyone who matures very far in Christ will begin to feel that they are misfits here on the earth. But whether or not one is a misfit depends very much on what one is supposed to fit. This is an important truth to impress in upon, would have been a great truth to impress upon me as a teenager when I was more vulnerable to the feelings of peer pressure and influence in high school, you know. (laughs) I felt like a misfit there for lots of reasons. And I felt a strong urge in those days to fit in. I don't know where that came from. I don't know what that was all about. But this is a true thing that whether or not one is a misfit depends on what one is supposed to fit. And Christians are these wonderful misfits in this world. We live in ways that don't fit. Our values don't fit. The things that we love and cherish do not line up well with what is loved and cherished by the world. And God is making misfits of us here because he is fitting us to another place. 
And that place is the place Jesus spoke of when he mentioned the Father's house. That place your soul longs for, and that this world keeps failing to be for you, will be found ultimately in the Father's house. Heaven is returning home. And we understand the joy behind the words that David sang in Psalm 23. Remember how he concludes that psalm? He said, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the psalmist's homing instinct, singing the praises of where he's going to. That is that mysterious feeling of assurance that comes over the salmon. That is the experience and the song of every Christian who looks forward to delight to the place that they are homing in on. God himself, the Father's house, heaven. My deepest experiences in worship, in worship have felt a lot like the feelings of being homesick when I was a little boy. Don't you feel a little homesick when Jesus speaks about coming to get us and taking us home? <laughs> it just brings to my mind that picture of my mom meeting me in the middle of the street and taking me back home because I couldn't make it through my best friend's house across the street. <laughs> in the middle of the night, I get on the phone, I call my mom, Mom, I just want to come home. And she would meet me in the street and walk me back across to my own house. I was a pathetic little kid. <laughs> homesick all the time. I'm a little homesick. Maybe you are too. I don't know how anybody can watch the events of these days, dwell much upon the news, the headlines, and just come to a grateful, joyous sense that this is not all that there is. <laughs> this is not my dwelling place. This is not home. This is a place where I have to be for a specific period of time to do a specific work. But to die is gain. It's to go home. And I'm looking forward to it so much. That's the first thing to notice, is that that's the Father's house where we're going. The second thing, and this point will be a little shorter, is that there is abundant room. Jesus says that in his house there are many rooms. Now, some translations, like the King James Version, use the word mansions. And I think that that is because of the influence on Latin in the translation of the old King James Version. The word, for, the word in Latin here, which the biblical text would have been in for most Bible scholars at that time, uh, is mansio, which, of course, they very easily translate into mansions. And mansion is not exactly a horrible fit. It's just that in English, in our, to our English words, it's hopelessly distorted with ideas of grandeur and opulence and wealth. And I think heaven will be wildly amazing beyond our, it'll make the word mansion look shabby and cheap, I think. <laughs> so I don't really have a problem with that idea. I just think it distracts from the main point that Jesus has to say. So when you see that word mansion, just translate it in your mind to a big place with lots of rooms. That's the main idea. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate in this moment is not that heaven will be a place of luxury, pomp, and grandeur, although I think it, again, will be beyond our wildest imaginings. I think heaven will be amazingly wonderful, but the word here is simply communicating this, that there's plenty of room. This is what Jesus is saying. There's room for you. 
God wants you to be there. The invitation is on the table. It is not limited in any way. It's not like if more people come, heaven will be less. It's not like that. You can no more hoard God's presence than a fish can hoard water. I mean, it's just crazy. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, there is enough room for every soul who would answer the call. There is room there for all that would come. Now, we need to stick a pin in this thought. I'll come back to it at the end. The third thing to see in the words that Jesus gives us about heaven is this. There will be a welcome there. Uh, Just as the disciples were sent ahead earlier that day to prepare and make ready the upper room for the evening meal, so Jesus goes on ahead of his disciples to, quote, prepare a place for them. Uh, Just as kind of an interesting side thought, John begins his Gospels, do you remember this, by explaining that it was Jesus who was the creative genius who spoke the world into being over the span of how many days? Six. Six days, God created all that is. God spoke, and water appeared everywhere. He separated the water from the land. The stars appeared in the sky. He spoke, and all the plants spread over the face of the earth. He spoke in wildly amazing living things started moving about on the surface of the earth. At a word from him, elephants and dogs and ants started moving about. It's amazing. So just think of it. Jesus, that creative genius who made all that is and all that we enjoy and savor and marvel at in this world, is preparing a place for you. What does that mean? (laughs) What could that possibly mean? And I know God is all-powerful, so it's not like given a thousand days, he could do more than he did in six, because at a word, he could have done it all instantly. But just think of it. I mean, have you ever stood in amazed, marveled, awestruck silence at something in this world? Have you stood on the lip of the Grand Canyon or on the shore of the ocean? Have you looked at something minute like a snowflake? Or have you held a newborn baby in your arms? Have you ever marveled at the creative genius of our God and attached that to these words, I'm going to prepare a place for you? Oh, God is going to surprise us with some wonderful, wonderful things. We'll never tire of him in eternity. We'll never get to the end of exploring whatever it is he's preparing for us there. But that's a bit of a digression. I think, a, I think we can no more imagine what heaven will be like than the baby growing inside my wife Sarah can imagine what this is like out here. Uh, the baby's in there in utero, living in a wonderful, comfortable world. All its needs are met. But it cannot imagine from its frame of reference what all of this out here looks like. The baby in its mind cannot image forth the picture of a spruce tree or a field covered in sparkling, shimmery snow. It just can't conceive of such things. And so why would God try to describe for us that which we're not capable of capturing in our minds? 
I mean, here's a bit of an interesting exercise. Right now, I dare you, in your mind, close your eyes, I want you to imagine a brand new color. Nope, you can't do it. In your mind, all you could think of, all that went through your mind, were pictures of colors that you've already seen. (laughs) You can't imagine heaven. You can't imagine heaven because all we have as our frame of reference is this. But But just let all the magic of that moment be attached to those simple words, he's going to prepare a place for you. Wow. It's wild. It's crazy. But here's the big thought. When we speak of Jesus as going on ahead to prepare a place for us, I do not want us to imagine Jesus as our host in the Father's house. In my study this week, I encountered a lot of Bible commentators using that word host to describe Jesus as welcoming us into the Father's house, and it just didn't sit right with me. And I had to stop and ask myself why. Why do I keep encountering this word host and really not liking it? And here's why I think the description rubbed me the wrong way. By describing Jesus as our host in heaven, that really employs the language of hospitality. And isn't there a world of difference between make yourself at home and welcome home? That's a big difference, isn't there? Whenever anybody has ever told you to make yourself at home, did you make yourself at home? (laughs) Did you wander around in your underwear? Did you kick your shoes off in the middle of the living room and just leave them there? I don't think so. (laughs) And of all the thousands of times I've been told to make myself at home, I have never once made myself at home. It really is just a world of difference between welcome home and make yourself at home. And Jesus is not going to be your host That's the language of hospitality. The word for hospitality in the Greek New Testament, which is unrelated to any word we've seen in this text, I'm going off again on a bit of a rabbit trail, a bit of a tangent, but the word there is philoxenia, which is a a compound word in Greek. It means brotherly love to strangers. Philo means brotherly love. That's the root of Philadelphia, for example, the city of brotherly love, brotherly love. And then xeno is where we get our English word xenophobia from, the fear of strangers, the fear of people who are unlike yourself. And so the Greek takes these two words, philo and xenia, shoves them together into one compound word that means extending loving care to people who are perfect strangers. So hospitality means that. It's the act of lovingly inviting a stranger into your home. Now, we used to be strangers. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 makes this abundantly clear. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That passage is saying very plainly, you used to be a stranger to God. But you are not strangers anymore. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And to take it a step further, God hasn't just invited us into his home. He's invited us into his very family to be a permanent member of that home. 
In 1 John 3.1, God, with great generosity of language, says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then as if, as if John in this moment says, no, that's wrong to say that we're just called children of God, he adds another sentence. This is, these are God's words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are. <laughs> Not we're called. That doesn't do it justice. That is in fact what you are. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So again, there is a world of difference between making yourself at home and being welcomed home, and I emphatically would say that what Jesus is describing here is a welcoming home to our house where we belong. He will not be extending us hospitality I want you to imagine the prodigal son coming home when you imagine yourself going to heaven. And rather than the father saying, I'll let you come into my house, he throws a cloak around his son. Jesus' perfect robes of righteousness will be put around us. There is a feast prepared. The fatted calf is brought forth. We're told about the wedding feast at the end of time. And there is a welcome. The father sees him coming from afar and runs to meet him and greets him and says, everything in my house is yours. Not make yourself at home, son. Welcome home. There will be a welcome in heaven. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth. And the last thing to see about heaven in these words is at first it sounds small and insignificant, but I'm telling you it's probably the most important thing in here. I don't, maybe not it doesn't seem small and insignificant. It seems like obvious. It seems obvious, almost to the point that it's silly to make the observation, but Jesus will be there. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Incidentally, and this is another rabbit trail kind of moment, I'm looking forward on the other side of Easter. We're going to, the next sermon series we do, and I hope to wrap up John by Easter morning, is a sermon series on Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives. Generally don't like to emphasize those things because they tend to, tend to emphasize what separates us off from other Christians. I like to emphasize what uni- unites us to the whole, that we're all one family, we're all playing for Team Jesus. Uh, But I figure maybe once every hundred years or so, we should ask the questions, why do we exist as a separate movement? What what is the history here? What are the people who founded the church, what convictions did they hold in their interpretations of the Bible? We're going to do that. But one of the things that is somewhat unique about Advent Christians, although not entirely, lots of Christians hold this convictions within the broad tent of evangelical mainstream Christianity, But my conviction is, is that heaven is not a place where we go when we die. Uh, We will go to the Father's house when Jesus comes back to get us. That's my conviction. And I think this, this passage does tend to reinforce that idea. That's what he says here. You're going to go to the Father's house when I come back to get you. That's a reference to the second coming of Christ. Not you're going to go to the Father's house when you come to the end of your life. 
1 Thessalonians 4.16 speaks of that glorious day. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is speaking of the day when Jesus comes back to get us, to take us home. And that is a future day that we look forward to. Now that's a bit of an aside, and we'll explore those ideas later on this spring. However, the last and the most important thing these verses tell us about heaven is simply this, Jesus will be there. And of course, you might say, well, of course Jesus is there. You might think this is a silly thing to point out. However, the whole point of heaven, at least from Jesus' perspective, is that we would be together. That where I am, Jesus says, you may be also. This is really the main thought Jesus wants to impart to his disciples. And I'll confess that when I read these words in which Jesus describes some things about heaven, I get frustrated that he doesn't give us more details about what heaven will be like for us experientially. What will it look like? What marvels will be there? What is the context in which we will be together? That's what I'm really fascinated about, and why doesn't he do it? I'd like a sneak peek, wouldn't you? And I think possibly one of the reasons why he doesn't do that is because he knows how our sin-clouded hearts would latch on in fascination to those details and relegate Jesus' presence, really relegate Jesus to somebody whose value and utility lay in his ability to connect us to those wonderful marvels. Jesus wants to see and savor the idea as central that we will be together. Monterey, California still holds a warm, cherished place in my memory. My week there was an absolute delight to the senses. I ate every meal at a restaurant. It was fun. It was carefree. It was easy. It was beautiful. However, it would have been a shell of a place and a shell of an experience without Sarah. Monterey was the stage, but us being together on the 10th anniversary was the show. I just liked being with her. I think sometimes people experience a strong warmth of feeling for a place because it was the haunt where they spent special times with special people or a special person. I have to confess, when I first saw the grounds of Camp Nomaca, I thought to myself, what is all the fuss? <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen better dwellings in third world countries. This place is falling into the river. It is an absolutely nondescript corner of Aroostook County stuck between a swamp and a ravenous river. <laughs> what do the trustees just said? We get it, okay. But here's what I understand about Camp Nomaca. The reason why it is so special, the reason why it is set apart, why it is invested in, why it is beloved, why there is a warmth of feeling attached to that place, is because people have had special times with God there. 
They've had special times with special friends. They've made incredible friendships. People have met their spouses there. It is a powerful place where deep connections were born. And that is worth noting. Other people feel warmth of feeling towards their old college dorms, hometowns, honeymoon locations. And these all hold this warm place in people's memories and that not because they are unique and special places in and of themselves, although they undoubtedly are to some extent, but because it was the space where a special season was enjoyed with a special person. Isn't that true? Heaven is going to be like that. Heaven is going to be, I think it'll be more amazing than we are possibly able to conceive. But Jesus wants you to know the thing that will make it so unbelievably amazing is who you're going to be spending it with. We're going to be together there, he says. Psalm 1611, I think, really captures this. It says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's where it's at. And at your right hand, there are these pleasures forevermore. That's heaven. That's heaven. Now that fellowship has already begun through the Holy Spirit. And thus, it is not true that in heaven we will find our way to God, but that in God we find our way to heaven. This is the truth of it. And something to know about Jesus is this. Jesus is both where we are going and he is how we get there. This is my last and closing point. He says this, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are, go- where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You want to know how to get to the Father. You're talking to the perfect representation of him. You want to know what he's like. You're talking to him. The whole point of heaven is that we would be together there. I I am where you are going, and I am the way to get there. Now, I, I, I don't want to hold out the joy, the excitement, the pleasures of heaven and leave anyone confused like Thomas about how exactly do I get there? How exactly at the end of this life do I go to this blessed place? And so if you're here with us this morning or you're gathered with us online, if somehow your internet wanderings have brought you here, I want to wrap this up by making it crystal clear how you can be 100% assured that you will, have, you will go to the Father's house when Jesus comes back. The first thing you need to know is this, that you are, apart from Jesus, you are lost You are separated from God, and you are going not to heaven, but to hell. This is the awful reality. The Christians talk a lot about the gospel. 
Gospel means the good news. And you can't have good news without first having what? Bad news. <laughs> Here's the bad news. The bad news is that man has rebelled against a righteous God. And God, who is perfect in his attributes, cannot just let that go unpunished. It must be punished. And so as a result, man is under a curse. In Ephesians 2, we are described as objects of wrath. And it says here in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is true. We are all lost, separated from God, and heading to hell. But Romans 6.23 instantly crowds in on the first bad news with the first inklings of the gospel. Listen to this. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what you've earned. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is not the kind of God who is just itching to give, you, give us what we deserve. He is a God of grace and mercy. He is a God who wants to give you the free gift of God. And that free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a welcome to the Father's house. and Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Romans 5.8 makes this abundantly clear. You don't earn this because you're good. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You cannot clean yourself up to the point where God would say, okay, now you are deserving of the gift. No, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were afar off, estranged, enemies in our minds toward him, when we were in that state is when he died for us. And Romans 10.9 makes this statement, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a wonderful verse. Romans 5.1 says that as a result, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we talked about justification last week, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been put at peace. All of the just, righteous wrath that should be meted out on sin was poured out on God, and you are left as the incredible beneficiary. You're at peace with God. What a trade. God took your, Jesus took your punishment and gave you his reward. That's an incredible transaction. That's the transaction at the very heart of Christianity. And you're now at peace with God because Jesus stood under his wrath. In Romans 8.1, one of my personal verses that I say to myself a lot in the wake of some sin that I've committed, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Such generosity of language from our Lord. In Romans 8.38-39, a very precious passage to me personally, Paul writes this to the Christians in Rome. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
when it says there that nothing in all creation, creation is everything other than God. (laughs) God has already assured us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he says that nothing in all creation will be able to separate you. So if God will not cast you off, and if nothing besides God can separate you, what does that mean? It means you are perfectly secure. Your salvation didn't, you was not obtained by your goodness, and it cannot be maintained by that either. The amazing, wonderful truth of the Bible is that God is such a shepherd that we should not question his keeping powers. He is not the kind of God that lets his sheep wander off to destruction. But he is a respecter of decisions. He is a respecter of decisions. And what God has offered in his word is a pardon, which you can either pick up or leave on the table. He has set before you life and death. And he has encouraged you to choose the better path, the narrow path, go through the narrow way. He has made plain the way of life. Thomas said, we do not know how to get there. And he said, yes, you do know the way. And he was referencing himself. Thomas, you know me. I'm where you're going and I'm how you get there. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm the way home. I'm the perfect personification and embodiment of all the truths you need to believe to get there. And I am the one who can, by the Holy Spirit, give you newness of life. I can give you the capacity, the inner capacity to live in the way and to believe the truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Put your trust in me. And if you're somebody who has just grasped the beauty and the necessity of the gospel for the first time, I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And I need you to know that getting the words just exactly right is not what matters God knows your heart. God knows if belief has, been, has begun to flourish in your heart. And you can just agree with this prayer as I pray it, and it can be your prayer. If you have already prayed and put your trust in Jesus for salvation, I would ask you in this time as I'm praying just to pray for any lost person who might be hearing this prayer and making it their own. Just pray for them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, right now, Perhaps there is somebody who has come to an awful awareness of the bad news. That they are lost, that they are separated from you, and that they are headed not to the Father's house, but to a certainty of wrath and judgment. And perhaps they're scared. Perhaps like Thomas, they are asking bluntly, I do not know the way. And they have just heard the answer that you are the way, that Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And Father, right now, I just want to guide them in praying this very simple prayer. But God, you know that unlike other religions, there's no special incantation. There's no special mixture of words that gets the formula just right. God, you just are a God who knows the heart. And so, Father, I just pray that this would be the heart prayer of someone who is hearing these words right now. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I have sinned against your righteous commands. I am deserving of punishment. Father, I know from your word that the wages of sin is death. That's what's deserved. 
But God, I believe you in your word when you say that you don't want to give me what I deserve. But you want to offer me, God, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and he took my punishment there. And in a mysterious way and with a depth of love that I frankly have a hard time understanding. But I believe, God, that you are offering me Jesus' reward. That he took my place on the cross and you are willing to give me a place in your home as your very child if I would just put my trust in Jesus. And Father, I do that. Father, I, I put my trust in Jesus for salvation and him alone. I know I could never earn it. I know I could never get to your house and enjoy pleasures at your right hand forevermore. I could never be with Jesus there by working hard, by obedience to the laws. God, I, couldn't, I can't save myself. I need a Savior. And I thank you for offering me one. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help me to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. Father, I'm giving my life to you. I want to be like the God who has saved me. Help me, Lord. Send me the Holy Spirit and help me to do that. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you just prayed that prayer, uh, you are my new brother or sister. You're a Christian. And you are you are safe and secure in the hand of the Father. He never loses a one. But I would urge you not to keep what just happened to yourself. Tell somebody, tell me, it would make my year. (laughs) And I will tell you what next steps you can follow as a new follower of Jesus. But if you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. Just talk to a fellow Christian and let them know about what just happened. In Jesus' name, amen.